Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. What I want to open up with and as we get started, um, and then mm-hmm. we're just going to dive in and have fun. Um, okay. You have the right to tell me I can't go there. So you. Yeah, there's pretty much nowhere that I won't go. So Good. I'm, I'm very, 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 very open about basics, about every aspect of the story, just because I think it's so important not, not to hide anything. Well, good. So. And I also want to um, open, there's, I'm not sure if you've listened to any others. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, all of them open up with an introduction. My name is, and my greatest passion is this. Greatest passion's pretty broad, though. <laughs> the power of the interview is the power of the pregnant pauses. Like, all right, let me think. Um, it's not that people need space to form their responses. It's their life experiences that challenge the logic in our brains to bring language to our hearts. Our hearts have so much to say. Kate Ronta has so much to share. It's my job to provide the space to share and the patience to bite my tongue and truly hear her story. Welcome to Intersection. I'm Bobby Ratu, storyteller. Okay, I got it. All right. So, all right. My name is Kate Ranta. And my greatest passions are um, this great journey of being a mother to two amazing, amazing sons and getting to see them grow into amazing young men. Um, My other passion is music by Queen. Who I've gotten to see twice this year, and it's been absolutely amazing. And the third is being on this journey to shine a light and give voice to uh, violence against women and understanding that this is not our fault. Their shame is not on us. And I'm just very passionate about making sure that that message gets across. Well, I'm glad you included Queen because I'm a huge fan (laughs) of Queen, which is awesome. Uh, Yeah, I'm obsessed. (laughs) It is so awesome. But one of the things that you said that I want to venture down a little bit is, how do you raise good men? How are you doing that? Well... I can say that just as a as a woman I've evolved I have personally evolved a lot and had to shed a lot of um the messages that I heard growing up um you know in pop culture and society about what it is to be a woman um I've so, you know, and that's it's just very ingrained. And so 
I think through my own involvement, I have been able to use that in, you know, messages that I give my son as far as um, shedding a lot of that, you know, man up, be a man, don't, don't be like a girl, that kind of stuff that people just throw around. Um, I'm very, very careful about, about that kind of stuff, you know, and just given everything that I've been through being a domestic violence survivor, you know, they've heard me tell my story many, many, many times. And I, I, I know that that has had an impact on them as to the type of men that they that they should be. If and that they, makes sense. That and so, if we jump forward to the the basis of your story, which typically mm-hmm. in our culture is that we don't really get domestic violence until a major event happens. Right. Um, so let's just jump to it. I, okay. I, I've read the book. I've read lots Great. of articles. And mm-hmm. um, they witnessed it. My younger son did, not my older one. So but yes, my younger son did. Your younger son witnessed it. What mm-hmm. is it? Describe it. What happened? And then we're going to dive into all the systemic stuff and the book and everything else. Sure. Sure. Well, it is the shooting that happened in November of 2012. I was in the middle of a, of a very contentious divorce with my abusive ex-husband. Um, it, it just was not going well at all it, it he was stonewalling the entire year about a year and a half um i just wasn't getting anywhere with the divorce and um in november of 2012 he had stalked me to my apartment i had not given him the address of where i had moved i'd only been there for two weeks he appeared there unannounced um, and he basically ambushed us. My father was also there and like I said, my younger son and he shot through the door behind which my dad and I were standing and pushing against it to keep him out. And I was shot twice and my dad was shot twice right in front of my son. Where were you shot? on your body so one bullet he came when once he got into the apartment after he had shot through the door he shot again and that bullet went through my right hand and then i'm not uh, entirely sure but i'm assuming one of the bullets that went through the door uh went in and out of my left breast so it just missed my heart wow and yeah and then my dad was shot in his left arm which is still disabled to this day and he was shot point blank in his left side and yeah and by some miracle the the bullet missed 
his vital organs. Um, it had to be removed from his body, but it didn't, it didn't hit any vital organs. So we're, we're just, um, we're just extremely lucky. There's a crucial moment in the beginning of the book, which I think is so well set up that this desire to get out and your dad Uh talking about and you screaming, trying to get to safety and how you're laying there and there's all these cops around Mm -hmm. and you talk about how you have bulletproof vests, but here I am exposed. Somebody come get me. And it was your dad's will and your will to get up and get over there. And then when you get over there, the officer was saying, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Why is that such a crucial part of your story in your mind to open up the whole book and set the stage right there? Because it really exemplifies just the absolute failure across the board of so many people that had been warned that I had warned about him and that nobody would do anything about. So the officer that was over me saying, I'm I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, was the same officer who I had called before the shooting when I realized that he had slashed my tire in my car and when I when I called the police and and she arrived she said that they couldn't do anything because I didn't have a restraining order and I had no court orders of any kind and told me to go get a restraining order the next day and I said well I've already been turned down for three I'd already been turned down for three restraining orders so I didn't think that I would somehow get a restraining order for this one either and she just basically said that there wasn't much she could do and and left the scene um you know she didn't ask to see you know a picture of him she didn't ask for a description of his car didn't look around the grounds to see you know I mean even if I didn't even though I didn't have a restraining order, she could have at least, he was on the ground. He was, he was there. He was on the property, you know? Yep. Um, nobody was proactive. And so I think by opening the book with that, it just sets up the rest of the book for just this failure, that failure, that failure, and just how preventable this was. Why write a book? I knew, I knew right probably very shortly after the shooting that this was something I wanted to do. Um, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm in marketing. I've, my career has been editorial and, and marketing. I'm an English major. I, I mean, I'm a writer. I'm, I, I, I can do this. Um, and it's just the best way for me to express myself. Um, I wanted it all in, in one place because I just feel the story is so 
just incredible and unbelievable, but it happened. And I wanted all the details all in one place and to put it out in the universe and hopefully save some lives because this stuff is going on all the time, but people don't want to talk about it. So how did you come up with a title, Killing Kate? What's that all about? Well, my co-author and I and the publisher had been kind of going back and forth between us with some titles that I just wasn't, you know, I just wasn't, it wasn't doing it for me. Um, And so I was then in a group chat with some friends and we were, and we started throwing around some titles and just whatever. And uh, one of my, one of my friends wound up saying killing Kate. And I was like, that's it. That's exactly it. And I went back to my co-author and the publisher and I was like, this is what I want it to be. And, and they agreed. So it's kind of a, it's a metaphor for a lot of things, but part of it is that it's the, you know, it's obvious because of the shooting, (laughs) but also really it, it's about my evolving as a, as a, as a person and, and processing this journey. Um, It's almost, killing the person that I used to be, which hasn't necessarily been a bad thing. Yep. So that's why it's, you know, tragedy into triumph because I, I like who I am now better than before. That's a funny thing that you say that, and I don't mean funny in the sense that we're laughing, yeah. but it's, <laughs> but metaphorically, that is a common thing that I've heard through so many survivors that I love myself more than I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. I do. And so one of the things that I think is interesting in that conversation is the idea of leaving. Mm-hmm. And um, I've asked this to so many survivors and also so many victims, you know, about your choice to leave. What does it mean to leave? And is it an emotional thing? Is it a spiritual thing that guides you to the physical process of removing oneself from a relationship? To you, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to leave? What you opened up with, my only choice was to leave. What did yep. you mean by that? Um, so I before this relationship, I had never fully experienced an abusive relationship before. Mm. I dated and been married to like, you know, regular, normal guys, you know? So this, this, this was just so confusing and, and difficult. But when it got to the point where he really physically threatened me, it, that was there. 
for me, the moment of I had no choice but to leave because I had never seen anything like this before. And I, I knew that we were in danger. Who is we? And I was my children and me. Oh. And I, I, it, it, I didn't, I didn't find it extremely emotional when I did it. Me in the sense that I wasn't wistful for the relationship at that point. I was more in like survival mode. So leaving for me was saying that I'm not going to tolerate this. You know, you're, you're not going to, you know, physically threaten me and I'm just going to take it. You know, when reading this book, um, I feel like I'm going back through every interview that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And and I don't mean that in a way that minimizes what the words that you put onto the paper but it's so parallel to so many stories that yeah. because you actually verbalized in so much detail that I could see for the first time my instinct of asking, if you're detailing this in this part of the story, why aren't you leaving now? And why aren't you leaving now? Mm-hmm. And why aren't you leaving now? And that is typical of family members and friends that Absolutely. are from an external point of view that are just thinking. They can just see le- it clearly. Yes. Yep. But it's a tension too, isn't it? Because they don't live within mm-hmm. inside of it. Talk about that process of detailing all that and how it was hard to go through that process and not leave? Or did you never recognize it until the end? That's, that's exactly it, what you just said. So for me, I didn't have the language ah. as far as understanding what abuse is and what the signs are. When I was growing up, we, basically you knew if he hits you that that's bad. Mm. But I didn't even know what emotional abuse was until I got out of it or coercive control or the power and control type of situation. I had never heard anything about that. So I didn't have the language to understand what it was that was happening. And it happened so slowly over time that you're not, you're, you're not even realizing that that's what's going on until you're so deep into it you're in a, I, I've 
in talking to even my kids about this, I've described it as being in a fog and being kind of a shell of myself and almost being under a spell. Like I don't even recognize who I was while I was in that relationship. It, it's just the, the whole idea of, of abuse and the, and, and the tactics that abusers use, it's all just so insidious and not obvious. It's obvious from the outside, but when you're in it, it's very, it's, it's, I mean, I was, I had a small, I had a newborn baby. I mean, Will was two when everything blew up. So a lot of the stuff that was going on, I mean, I was also, uh, and I had a five-year-old, like I had young children. I wasn't, and I was working full time. So it's just very hard to see when there's just so much going on all around you. You know? Yep. One of the things that when I think about the tremendous detail that you put into the book, my mm-hmm. questions were, man, did she document this or did she just spend years remembering these stories and writing them down? How how did you get go back and just retell in such detail all these stories because they're like micro stories. They're short chapters of different pockets of yep. information. Right. No, I remember everything. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem. I, I didn't, I, I didn't journal during that time. I, it just, I really remember because I guess because things there were things that were just so odd that you don't forget that stuff. Like I have had plenty of normal relationships where I couldn't tell you, you know, conversation by conversation, but what you read in the book, the, the, the anecdotes and, and bits and pieces that you, that, that you read, I remember everything. So when we set out to do this, my co-author, and I, um, I wasn't sure how we were going to, like how I was going to get all of this information. And what we wound up doing was, um, I did hours and hours of recordings, uh, uh-huh. based on like an outline that mm-hmm. of, because she, and so she interviewed me and we created an outline based on that interview, um, of things that we wanted to hit and, and, you know, situations that we wanted to describe. And then I would do voice recordings explaining in big and, you know, in detail what had, what had gone on. Um, so that was just how, how we were able to get it all in one place. But I'm, I really don't, I, I remember everything. You know, the other thing that I noticed in the book is 
you have so many pictures of Tom in here. Mm-hmm. Was that hard to do that? Um, yes and no. Why was it it's important? Hard to, this... why, why was it important? And I'm sorry to interrupt. Why, why, why did you need to put pictures of him in there? I want people to see that these types of men, these types of abusers, they don't look like monsters, right? Uh. Like, he looks like a handsome, nice family guy. You know? Um, I think that people like to paint these, you know, people like to paint these guys as if they're, it's so obvious that, that, that they look, you know, that they look evil or they look a certain way or again, like back to like the monster, <laughs> that they're just some kind of monster, but, but no, um, they don't. And I, I, I think that that's, that's why I wanted to, include him I and putting a, a face with the name and seeing what I was seeing those pictures show like what I was living and what I was what I was seeing what's so um, what's so fascinating about that is to me as you talked about him the contrast with like your ex-husband before him, that the mm -hmm. father of your, uh, your oldest mm -hmm. and that relationship was such, even though you're divorced, it, it's painted as you had a healthy relationship in that you were co-parenting. We were, um, we were, I mean, it was difficult at right. the very beginning, obviously, but we right. had worked and gotten to a point where, we we were like very good co-parents to the point that like we could have dinner together with Henry and you know we were we were in communication we were you know we were successfully co-parenting and that was one of the first things that my abusive ex set out to destroy and he was definitely successful in that how how hard was that for you? Because I think that's an interesting illustration that you don't hear many uh, domestic violence survivors and victims talk about is those relationships that are divided, especially ones like it's an ex that you have a child with that you have a healthy relationship in some capacity mm -hmm. because you're focusing on that child yet the power and control is so important. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's easy to compartmentalize, right? right. And I, I did a lot of that. So when he started chipping away at that relationship, he... he knew what he... he knew what he was doing, and he knew what to say in order for it to make sense to me. Like he would say, well, my therapist says that, you know, 
uh, the, that kind of your your co-parenting relationship should be more business like. I'm paraphrasing; he didn't say exactly that, but it was the the point was that I was being too friendly, right, with Henry's dad. Um, that it needed to be more like a business transaction, and then he would ask to see the emails that I was sending before I sent them and he would kind of rewrite them and to the point where it didn't even sound like me. It sounded like him. Yeah. I remember that. And then I, and then, yeah. And then I, and so I can only imagine what Henry's dad must've been thinking, like, what is going on? (laughs) Yeah. Like this doesn't even sound like her. I, so I, you know, I've never really had that conversation with him, but I, I can only imagine he must have been really, you know, very confused. And uh, I just, I, my focus, of course, was Henry, but also I was starting this new relationship and I, that I really, really wanted to work out. And so I was approaching it from like, well, I want this to work out. I, I can respect where he's coming from on it. Um, so, yeah, I can pull back a little bit. Yeah. Do you... Where is that relationship now? Is it is it, is it a hard one now after all this? Um, yeah, I, no, we're okay. We're, it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay now. Um... Because the, I asked that question, so many survivors and victims talk about the years of abuse that not only happened to them, but the right. residual abuse to the families, and it takes years of healing. I Yeah. And, and your yeah. dad with his physical scars, and I'm sure it has yeah, been I, a process for everybody. It has. It has. And I, I'm very fortunate that unlike a lot of other survivors that I know whose friends and families turned against them out of frustration, mine, my friends and family really didn't. Even when I reconciled the one time, the one time I went back, they were horrified, (laughs) but they never, they never rejected me they never turned against me they never said they wouldn't talk to me again not nobody i was i'm very very fortunate in that sense um i always had support throughout the entire situation but yeah i mean yeah of course they've all had their own processes to go through um especially after the shooting. There are so many gaps in this story of domestic violence. Um, Not only, you know, is there gaps inside the services and things necessary to to help victims and survivors, but also the families of around them. One Mm -hmm. of the big gaps that I'm starting to notice more and more in this work is the families, how they are torn apart as they Mm -hmm. are, many of them, and some of them are trying to be a support system. And then they, as they watch their family members go back multiple times, 
it creates yep. it creates a divide. Talk about from your perspective how you manage that, or is it were you just surviving? How I managed that what, those relationships. When I went back? Yeah, oh. like you know when you went back, how did you go back and how did you manage your family because you knew. I'm sure in the back of your mind, or maybe I, I shouldn't, or maybe yeah. I shouldn't put words in your mouth. I, I should just open no. it up for a question. Yeah, no, I did. I knew in the back of my mind that, listen, when I went back to him, it's not like it was like rainbows and butterflies. And I, you know, went running back into his arms. It, was just, it wasn't like that. I, when I took him back, um, I was in a, a really very, very low point. Um, you know, because I had left when he threatened to physically harm me. And eight months later, you know, nothing had, had moved forward as far as the divorce went. And um, I, we hadn't paid the mortgage in months and months and months. My car had been repossessed. I couldn't afford the life that we had created there in Florida just on, you know, my salary alone. William was in preschool. We had pre, I had preschool costs. I, there was a big financial aspect to it that was crushing. And I had also never experienced that before either, just losing everything. Um, and so when he, when we started talking again, he, it was like dangling a carrot. He was saying that, you know, he retired from the military, so he had pension and disability, and that he was getting this six-figure job, and that he just wanted to be a family again. He wanted, you know, William to have his father around, and, you know, that I could quit my job, and I could, you know, stay at home with William, and you know, not have to worry about working and all, you know, just all of those hot button emotional things that it makes sense somehow. And, you know, oh, and that the, the physical threat was, that was just a one-off thing. Cause it really, I mean, at that time, at that, he had never hit me before and he didn't even that one night he threatened to, but he didn't hit me. So it was like, oh, things just got a little out of control. Uh, it was a misunderstanding. I just got angry. It'll never happen again. I mean, if it's it, it's so easy to just say, okay, well, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe I did overreact. Maybe, you know, maybe things did get just crazy and. You know, he, maybe he's had time to think about it, and it's been eight months of being separated. So it, yeah, it's 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 difficult. It's and and then to try to explain that to the people around you is I, there was definitely a, a bit of embarrassment. I I did feel weak and a bit embarrassed which in retrospect probably should have tipped me off that it definitely wasn't the right thing to do, but I was absolutely just justifying it in my head. Um, 
And I, I, when I told people that I was going back, I wasn't smug about it. I wasn't like, well, this is what I'm doing and you're just going to have to suck it up. You know, I wasn't like that at all. I was, I was humble about it. It was just like, listen, you know, I've been divorced more than once. (laughs) Um, I need, I need this really, I need this marriage to work. I need this relationship to work. I, 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 you know, I, I want to put this family back together. Um, and, you know, everybody was, they weren't happy, <laughs> yep. but nobody really shamed me either. I mean, I, I have, you know, really good people in my life. Nobody, nobody was like, why are you being so stupid? No, nobody ever said anything like that to me, but to, the, my loved ones were were very were very upset when I when I was going back to him. Absolutely, one of the it things, was a very difficult time. Yeah, one of the things in the book that was fascinating that you talked about um, was how you even changed your body for him, and you mm-hmm. talked about the moles, and mm-hmm. um, the parallel to that is. Um, uh, on this podcast, I interviewed a lady by the name of Sabrina, and her, um, I think you might have, may have listened to it, but her son uh, plays for the Houston Texans. Mm-hmm. And her abuser threw acid on her, on her face, and really messed, I mean, just, she's blind uh. now, and she's, you know, it disfigured her, but she is now, uh, through that process, such a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. And if so many things that I've looked at is there is parts of this where the abuser wants to hurt them physically in ways that either shows power and control or... Mm-hmm take or does something in a way to let them know of their power and right talk about the moles and that is Uh, something that seems so insignificant to maybe so so many people but to me it's very significant in this story so significant it's because it's nothing that i would have done to my body Talk Otherwise, about, for people it, that it, haven't read the book, what did what did he ask okay. you to do? If that's okay. So I um, I had a, a mole, not a giant mole, like a just a mole on right. the um, left side of my nose. And I, I mean, I, I'd had it since childhood, um, and it kind of became like I I liked it. It became like I when I got uh, headshots taken when I, I lived in L.A. for a couple of years back in the 90s and I got some headshots taken. And I remember the photographer like compliment, like complimenting and wanting my mole and wanting to, you know, take kind of side profile, like a couple side profile pictures, almost featuring it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had two on my left breast up on the like like the upper part so if i wore a bathing suit like you could see them mm-hmm. but no big deal whatever <laughs> like it's just 
people have moles, right? right. I mean, they, they weren't they weren't skin cancer, right? So very early on, probably within the first, it was before it was before we were married. So within it had to be within the first three months, he started making comments about the mole on my nose and then the two moles on my breast. And he was saying that he, because he had moles too, and he was saying that he had some on his face that he had removed because he just hated them so much. And that became a conversation of, oh, have you ever thought about removing the one on your nose? And I just was like, what? You know, what? And no, I never thought about it. What? What about it? And it was like, oh, your your face would look so much. You'd look so much prettier. You're like I. I it, all I can really see when I look at you is the mole on your nose. And something that I had been considered beautiful, even by a professional photographer was something that I was suddenly shamed about, ashamed of. And probably within a couple of weeks, I made a appointment with a dermatologist and he came with me and I scheduled to have it removed along with the two on, on my breast. And that is, that is like just a like microcosm of power and control. Like, that's such a perfect example of power and control. He knew that he could get me to do things. And yeah. that was happened early on. He knew he could get me to do things, even alter my body. It's kind of like he was testing the waters along the way. He did it a lot at the beginning, looking back. Um, and that the mole thing was a prime example. Because there's no way, there's no way I would have ever ever had them removed especially the one on my nose and now when i had it removed they stitched it but this like one of the stitches came loose so the the wound opened a little bit and so it didn't even heal nicely <laughs> you know yep. so it's like i had this this mole on my nose and it, it was like almost worse after it was removed i had this this gaping wound for why it took a long long time to heal and now I don't have my mole <laughs> thank you for joining us we hope this conversation challenged you and changed your point of view part two of Kate's story in the next episode of Intersection Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health.